standing for the reading of Scripture this morning in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. As we continue in the Gospel of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, let us hear and attend to, even as was prayed, what is the word of God, not the word of men. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, even as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, uh, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one any more, but only Jesus with themselves." We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. <clears throat> the transfiguration of Jesus as the Christ of God is an apocalyptic vision. It's a revision that it is a, a, a divine vision that is revealing. And in this divine revealing vision, uh, Peter, James, and John are transferred into the spiritual realm of reality. This is not just some kind of dream that they had. No, this is a, an act of God. It's an apocalyptic vision. They're included in it. They're transferred into the realm of the spiritual reality as witnesses to the pre-resurrection divine glory of Jesus accompanied by Moses and Elijah and being authenticated by the glory cloud and voice of God the Father. Now, in our study and exposition of the Gospel of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ, for each chapter I've tried to capture the theme of how this relates to the straight talk of who Jesus Christ is and the Gospel, the good news in Him. So here in chapter 9, the New Covenant Christian Gospel is the God-ordained means for the transcendent power of the kingdom of God in heaven to be made imminent in the earth, that is, the supernatural power and presence of the triune God, personally knowable. We look this morning at verses 1 through 8, those verses I read a few moments ago. The transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, dramatically displays the transcendent and the imminent divine being who empowers the kingdom of God and heaven on earth. That's what I want to settle upon you this morning. That it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the divine being by whom the transcendent and the eminent power of God empowers His kingdom of God in heaven here on earth. Uh, that needs to settle upon us. That needs to keep us. In theological terms, God's transcendence means that He as uncreated creator is beyond, separate, other than, in no way limited or contained by anything outside of Himself. 
And God's imminence means that his personal presence is inescapable, but also specially revealed according to some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. That last part comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith about God's covenant. And so here we're again um, overwhelmed is the only word I know to use, awestruck, or we should be, with the wonder of who God is unto himself. He alone is uncreated creator. He is not conformed or influenced by anything outside of himself. He is altogether separate and other. And we could have no fruition of him as our blessedness and reward. We could not know who this God is. We could not approach him and be thrilled and excited about him other than by some condescension voluntarily on God's part. His coming down, his making himself known. This is a serious and sober reality of coming into contact with the uncreated creator. And it's not according to human imagination and to those various religions and philosophies of human ingenuity and human origin trying to reach out and trying to somehow put form or idea to the divine being or the other. And so it's not safe to go by our own imagination or even collectively human experience in trying to find out who God is. God is self-revealing. He makes himself known to us by the general revelation of his creation and by the special revelation of his word. And that's why we're talking about how the transcendent and the imminent that are essential to God's making himself known to us as God and then how that is manifest, how it is in an apocalyptic revelation, in an apocalyptic vision, a revealing vision. It is made known to us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect revealer of God the Father to all humanity. In verse 1 we read that the transfiguration should be understood as a covenantal sign. The kingdom of God present with power. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. It, it sort of carries over from the end of chapter 8. Remember the end of chapter 8 verse 38. And Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We talked about how that projects to the final judgment. That's always before us. That's the tension that ever keeps us focused. But then in chapter 9, carrying over that, Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you that there are some uh, standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now I agree with those commentators who relate this to Jesus' promise as a projection for the uh, final judgment and as a preview of that, the transfiguration reveals the pre-resurrection glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as pledge and promise that he will come again a second time without reference to salvation to judge all. And so verse 1 here of chapter 9 shows us that the, the transfiguration should be understood as a covenantal sign. This is God specially making known. God's condescending by way of covenant to attest that the kingdom of God is present now with power. We're not waiting till Jesus' second coming 
for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is present now with power, but a power that we must accept and embrace by faith, not with our own uh, experience or the eyes of our flesh or not by projecting upon uh, our own historical presence what we think the kingdom of God is to be. It's It's a kingdom of the gospel. It's the kingdom of the good news. And so we look at verse 2, that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he takes them to be covenant witnesses as the the covenant uh, requirement of two or three witnesses. Let every word be established. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John as covenant witnesses to his being transfigured, supernaturally changed in their presence. And so by this transfiguration, I want you to understand the biblical description here is that Jesus did not summon a spirit presence. Jesus did not become possessed experiencing a spiritual ecstasy. Jesus was changed. He was supernaturally transformed in their presence. Look at verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And then he goes on to give us some description as well as Matthew and Luke do about how this change appeared. But it's the substance of the change that that we are um, focused on. And that is that that, that, um, Mark notes that it was after six days. The after six days refers back to chapter 8 in Mark's gospel. Uh, Luke says it was about eight days. So six to eight days depending on how you number the days. And it's a reference to Peter's confession and his subsequent confounded attempt to forbid Jesus' rejection, suffering, and death. You remember what happened back in chapter 8? Jesus said, who do people say I am? And they said, well, some say that you're the prophet who is to come or that you're uh, John the Baptist, the Elijah. And they didn't say John the Baptist. They said the Elijah who is to come. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for them all, said, we confess you are the Christ. You are the anointed one of God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says to them, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus began to talk to them and tell them about what was going to happen in terms of his rejection, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And remember, Peter took him aside and forbade him, you know, it remonstrated and said, no, far be it from you, Lord, this is not what's going to happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. In other words, he says, you're thinking about the things of men, Peter. You're listening to the world. You're listening to the deception of the devil. You're not listening to me and the revelation of God for what must take place. And so it was six days after that, after Jesus gave them the teaching, after Jesus told them about the final judgment that would come, that what Peter was expecting will happen, but it will happen in God's timing and God's way. And what must happen before that is the suffering, the death, but also the resurrection. And yet they couldn't connect it. They couldn't get it together yet. And so then Jesus says to them, some of you standing here before you die, the power of God's kingdom is going to be revealed to you. And so the transfiguration takes place with Peter, James, and John as covenant witnesses to that which was confessed, but now must be even more deeply rooted in their faith. So if Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ gives the pre-resurrection climax to the gospel of Mark. And I agree, I think it does. 
It brings us the, the high point in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in you know, chapter 8 where Peter gives this confession. It is a climax before the resurrection, <laughs> before the, 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 the testimony of the resurrection. So if Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ gives the pre-resurrection climax to the Gospel of Mark, then the transfiguration of Jesus as the Christ in their presence is the exclamation point. Because this is what God the Father is saying to them. Yes, he is. Peter, what you said. Jesus said, it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven, Peter, not by flesh and blood. And now, God the Father is saying audibly to them on the Mount of Transfiguration, what you see? Yes, Peter, it is so. This is Christ, the Son of God. That just thrills me. It thrills me beyond words. It brings us to verse 3. His clothes, Jesus' clothes, became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Matthew and Luke talk about the radiance, about like a sunburst of Jesus' face. So there are these various descriptions that we have. The transfiguration Description of Jesus' clothes is, here in Mark is not to, uh, intended to uh, exclude Jesus' person. I, I want you to recognize that, that both um, Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus' person and his face also radiating and glowing. Mark focuses on his clothes glowing, uh, whiter than snow, whiter than any bleach could ever bring them. Something uh, emanating from within and through them. Uh, he informs us that this was a supernatural happening, but Jesus was still recognizable. That's the thing I want you to really focus on. Though there was this display and this description of this supernatural happening, the aurora of Jesus' divine person radiating through his humanity like a flashing, sparkling sunburst, and yet Jesus is still recognizable. They know it's him. I just could spend and have spent time over the last few weeks contemplating and thinking about that and reveling in that. That though Jesus was so gloriously displayed, his humanity can't contain the burst of the beauty of the sparkling, flashing aurora of his sunburst of deity, and yet it's still Jesus. They still recognize and see this is Jesus. So in verse 4, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. In this apocalyptic vision, Elijah and Moses appear talking with Jesus, and Luke tells us they were talking to him specifically about his exodus to be accomplished at Jerusalem. I think that's very important because we're told that the apostles were hearing them. Peter, James, and John heard the discussion that was going on. They knew that it was Moses and Elijah. We're not told how. Maybe they were identified to them. Maybe Jesus said to them, here is Elijah and Moses, but they did not doubt and they did identify and know that this is Moses and Elijah who are talking with Jesus and they're talking about the exodus, the greater exodus, the greater deliverance that he will accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, a commonly accepted idea 
is that Moses represents the Old Testament lawgiver and Elijah represents the Old Testament prophets, while the transfiguration signifies the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that Jesus is greater than the lawgiver Moses, that Jesus is greater than the prophet Elijah, that in Jesus all the law and the prophets come to their uh, fulfillment and, and to their purpose. And, and I agree with that. I think that is a, certainly what is going on here. But I also think that there is more that I wanted you to think about. Now, I, I'm careful about this. I, I didn't see this in uh, any of the sources that I consulted. Uh, that's not to say that it's original with me. I don't know if it is or not. But I do think it is borne out in Scripture. And the additional idea is that Moses and Elijah were both directed up to, into a mountain. And they desired to see the Lord. But if you'll remember, they were only exposed to the shaming presence of the Lord. God said to Moses, I'll pass by and, and my back and my backside is what will be revealed to you. Uh, and remember, God doesn't have a body like men. And the intent here was that Moses could not behold the full glory of God. Even though when he came down from the mount, his face was shining. The people said, put a veil over your face. You've been in the presence of the, of the divine and we can't bear it. it. It's too much. But to Moses, God said, you can't see my full glory. You're not capable. No human is. And so Moses was only allowed a shaming glimpse of God's glory. Can you imagine that? The glory of God so magnificent that even what we might say in human terms as the lesser, lesser glory shamed Moses. And you might remember with Elijah. Remember when Elijah was on the run and God said, get you up into the mountain, into the, to the cave or the cliff and the rock, and there I will, come, uh, pass, I will pass by you? And remember how there was the display of God's power in, in the, the, the mighty wind that frightened Elijah. And then there was the, the great um, fire, the consuming purity and fire of Almighty God. And, and in this, um, Elijah wrapped his face in his mantle and was quaking and was afraid. It's the end of me. And then what did God reveal and manifest himself to Elijah by? He said, I'm in my power, Elijah. The mighty whirlwind, the tornado, the most intense and in incredible natural powers. By all tornadoes gathered into one could not represent the power of God that was displayed to Elijah. And the great fire of all the, the conflating fires and, and volcano eruptions and all of the manifestations of God's power in fire that have been displayed on the earth all rolled into one could not represent the fire that frightened Elijah at the power of God and God said I'm not in the power or the fire the wind or the fire those are manifestations of my power Elijah but who I am as your personal God redeemer and covenant Lord, who I am as Yahweh to you in a whisper, in a still voice. And that brought Elijah to his knees. Not just the God of power, but the God who set his love on me. The God who knows me. 
was the most frightening thing of all, and yet the most reassuring. And to this, the glory of God that was revealed to Elijah, it was a shaming glory. Because Elijah was ashamed. The broken, small, whispering voice of God to him. Elijah, you must know me more than just my power. You must know me as your Lord. And that shamed Elijah as well it should. It should shame you and me. We are not able to to receive the full manifestation of God's glory in ourselves. We're not equal to God. If all we know of God and all that we pray and, and want is the power of God, we want God to smite our enemies and we want God to manifest His power and we want God to wipe out the evil that so troubles us, we need to understand that apart from the mediation of the grace of God, we too would be undone. So the shaming glory of God is mediated to us through the greater glory of the Son of God. And that's what happened with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. I believe the expression that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 3 is a a delightful contemplation of what was given to Moses and Elijah. That now Moses and Elijah, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord as being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is an apocalyptic vision. Apocalyptic vision in which Moses and Elijah meet with Jesus as lawgiver and prophet that Jesus now fulfills it all. And now it's not the shaming presence of God but the very radiating glory of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, that is mediated to them and to us and will be for all eternity. The Father's glorified in the Son. Verse 5, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles or three tents or three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, Peter enters the conversation expressing a covenantal consciousness. I want you to to pay attention to this. He's relating to the discussion of Jesus with Moses and Elijah. They're talking about the exodus that he's to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the exodus is connected with the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Do you remember that God gave a celebration and a remembrance for the coming out of Egypt when God delivered them, the exodus? And God said that you are to keep the, the, the festival of the ingathering as the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles for seven days. You're not to live in your homes. You're to live in these shelters, these um, lean-tos or these uh, booths that you make out of the branches of trees and, and out of leaves. You're to live out for seven days remembering how God brought them out of the oppression and the slavery of Egypt and how God was with them in the, uh, the cloud and the pillar, in the presence, the glory cloud and presence of the Lord, and how God provided for them. And for the presence of the God, the promise was for the future, that they were living in booths because this was not their destination. And so the exodus and the, the festivals or the, uh, the feast of booths or tabernacles is connected in the covenantal promises of God. So... A commonly accepted idea 
is that Peter just speaks nonsense off the top of his head. Oh, let us make three uh, uh, shelters here for you, little wayside shelters for you and for Moses and Elijah. We want to keep you here. Uh, well, uh, we don't know what to do, so let's just make you little shelters to stay in. I, I give Peter more credit than that. Those who think that he was just wanting to prolong their visit or prolong the vision or that somehow Peter was just babbling out of fear. Now, the scriptures tell us Peter, Peter didn't know fully what to say, but he did say something. And what he said is not something that's it's just babbling or nonsense. What Peter says here is not nonsense. Peter is connecting the discussion of the exodus that Moses and Elijah are having with Jesus Peter is connecting that with his knowledge of Scripture that the Feast of Booths was a promise of a future. And Peter is saying, oh, there's something more to come. I don't know that he had fully entered into the need for death yet and the promise of resurrection. But I believe that Peter's claim here and his desire here for making booths for Jesus and for Moses and Elijah is in connection with the promise of the feast of booze covenantally that this is not where we're staying God has a future and promise to move us on there is a promised land at this time did Peter still associate that with the geographical land and promise I don't know maybe he did but I don't think this is nonsense by Peter I think Peter is grasping to make the connection between the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish and the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths, that this is not where we're going to stay. God's promise is coming. So I, I want to give Peter more credit than that. I think he was reaching and grasping, as sometimes you and I also do, trying to connect the Scriptures. And of this I am sure. The exodus that Jesus accomplished at Jerusalem is the fulfillment of the promise of the Feast of Tabernacles, of the ingathering and of the booth. He is the first begotten from the dead. He is the beginning of the harvest. And what he is telling us is that you're not going to stay here. This is not where you're going to be. But I am building for you not a booth, not a tent, not a tabernacle. I'm building you mansions in the promised land. The future is still to come. And I, I believe Peter was trying to put that together. And then we read verse 6. Because he didn't know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And I want to tell you something here. I believe this disposition ought to transfer to us is that the apostles' fear was a legitimate, holy panic attack. This is what it is to come into the presence of God. We ought to have a holy panic attack. Seriously, we should have a holy panic attack every Lord's Day when we come into the public worship of God. And I don't mean that we're fear and quake and, and that we're afraid to come in. But there, we ought to be possessed with a holy fear of reverence. That we're on holy ground. Not by this geography. Not by this place. But the, by the promise of the presence of God. We're in a holy place. We're in a holy place of worship. Not the building. But we're entering into the promise of the transfiguration, of the great change. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Very same word that's used in Romans 12 is used of the transfiguration, to be changed. 
Same one that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. Beholding that glory of God and being transformed from glory to glory as by the Spirit of God. That's what's to be in, engaged in the worship of God and the public worship of God. That's why, for me, it, it's at the top of the list of how we preach the gospel and the kingdom of God and the transcendent and the imminent presence of God that empowers His kingdom and His power and His glory is in His worship. We enter into His worship. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols represent me. Represent and worship me according to my will on the day that I have appointed. Don't take my name in vain, but use my name in praise and prayer as I have revealed it and identified it to you. By the covenant transaction of the condescension of Almighty God to make Himself known to us in the transcendence of His being. The imminent power of His presence. Jesus in me. Jesus in you. The what? The hope of glory. That's why we're here. I want you to have a better life. I want tomorrow to be a good day. I want you to step out in faith. But your body may not feel better tomorrow. Your bills may not be paid by some benefactor. You may not win the lottery. Shame on us all. But will you walk with the Lord? Will you walk closer with the Lord? And will you walk closer with the Lord because you've been in His public presence according to His means and His promise by His transcendent being and yet His imminent presence empowering His kingdom? The kingdom is present now. I'm so exercised. I'm so exercised about the confusion over the church and the kingdom and over the seeming nonchalant passing by of the public worship of God with the cavalier comments that I often get. Oh, that's a given. Everybody knows about that. (laughs) No, we don't. I don't believe we know it as Scripture would have us know it. That brings us to verse 7. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. So the glory cloud of God's presence, and we could connect that with Moses and Elijah as well and the representation of God's presence and the way He revealed Himself, not just limited to Moses and Elijah, but certainly in the, in the accounts that we have of God's meeting with them. So the glory cloud of God's presence and voice authenticate this apocalyptic vision that the new covenant gospel of the kingdom of God and of heaven is a present reality, revealing Jesus as Christ, the Son of God. It's not something we're waiting for. Jesus said it's here now. He said that to his apostles. He revealed it to them, and he told them after his resurrection to make it known. By whom the transcendent and the eminent divine being empowers the kingdom of God and heaven on earth. This is what I'm pressing upon your conscience and faith this morning. Is that because of who Jesus Christ is, transfigured as the Christ of God. That's in connection with his coming and preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And so the transcendent 
power and the imminent divine being of who Jesus is, the Son of God, this is what empowers the present kingdom of God. So that the supernatural power and the presence of the triune God is personally knowable to you and to me. What more can I say? The uncreated God, the transcendent one, the imminent God to whom we must give an answer and an account for all our lives. But he brings us good news in the terms of his kingdom, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of reconciliation, a good news that says he is personally knowable, not as the lightning-hurling monster of human imagination, not in the impersonal machine of fatalism, but rather in the person of his son in whom he is pleased, the beloved one, and to whom he calls us to account. Hear him. And in a great and wonderful mystery of the means of grace, the Bible tells us whenever the word of God is preached in the centrality of Christ, the voice of Christ goes forth. Not my voice, but everything that's agreeable to the word of God in the fulfillment of who Jesus Christ is by the wonder and the mystery of, of worship, covenantal worship, new covenant, kingdom of God, presence and knowable, the Son revealing the Father, attested by the Holy Spirit of truth, you're hearing the Son in whom God the Father is pleased. He even gives us the very words. <laughs> Don't you love it? Don't you love it? Right there in verse 7. Um, this is my beloved son. Hear him. The very words of God. Uh, words that were heard at his baptism. Words that Jesus received and, and that Jesus took as his directive for coming to preach the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of God is present. And then this transfiguration ends almost as quickly as it began in verse 8. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Uh, elsewhere, Matthew and Luke were told that they were in fear or that they were in a stupor of sleep. And Jesus came and put his hands on them and reassured them. But the apocalyptic vision was clear enough to them. And the Holy Spirit validated and giving us testimony of it in the Holy Scriptures. So the sudden end of this apocalyptic vision is also a way of noting that it was divine. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't something they got together and conjured up. It wasn't Jesus calling some presence to come rescue him. It wasn't uh, Jesus having some kind of ecstatic uh, spiritual experience. It was an apocalyptic vision, a revealing of who Jesus Christ is as God's beloved Son, telling us to hear him about the meaning of the kingdom, and that's good news. So this is a supernatural happening beyond human limits or experience, but previewing the greater spiritual reality. How would you answer if I said, what is the greater spiritual, re spiritual reality that the transfiguration reveals to us? What is the greater spiritual reality that the transfiguration reveals to us? We're going to follow up next week with verses 9 through 13. 
the transfiguration of Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, gives a covenantal pledge previewing theological resurrection as more. This is the greater spiritual reality, that Jesus' resurrection is more than someone returning from the dead. We have record in Scripture of others returning from the dead. But Jesus Christ's resurrection is something more. By covenantal pledge, the glory that is revealed here in the transfiguration, the pre-resurrection glory, a glimpse of that given is a covenantal pledge to us that theological resurrection is more is about more than someone returning from the dead. So we'll follow on and take up with verses 9 through 13 uh, next week as we continue on in the Gospel of St. Mark. Our parting hymn this morning,